Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Robbie Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Uh, this is an, I guess, an emergency pod to talk about the verdict uh, in the Derek Chauvin trial. Is it Chauvin? I never bothered to actually learn how to pronounce his name, and I don't think I should start now. Um, but uh, we are joined by our good friend, uh, who actually is making his second appearance on Majority 54. Maybe uh, third, the- right? Second, but I did get a very cool shout out from y'all last week about not overvaluing ceilings. So, <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. Period. I love finding out that my friends actually listen. That's that's the best. <laughs> By the way, it was a shout out where I just gave myself credit for saying something wise. Like, <laughs> so I don't know how. No, anyway. no, but it was it was it was a moment we reached collectively. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don is an attorney, the founder of the National Voter Protection Fund, the CEO of Pine Street Strategies, a sought-after Democratic strategist from mayoral to presidential campaigns, and a frequent presence on MSNBC. In 2008, he and I were both elected to the Missouri House of Representatives, he from St. Louis and me from Kansas City. He had the distinct displeasure of being my roommate in Jefferson City and remains one of my closest friends. Uh, Don Calloway is, uh, he also has the distinction of being unlike Ravi and myself, who are just recovering lawyers, Don still is is a lawyer, right? I mean, you still do some lawyer stuff. Yeah, yeah. Most of my stuff is in the civil rights universe, so uh, ADA stuff. But uh, yeah, back to practicing law. I kind of felt like, and I guess this is somewhat pertinent to our discussion today, I kind of felt like any Black man with a law degree needs to maintain his law license because any <laughs> hometown is eight minutes and 46 seconds away from being the center of the world, right? And I felt... Uh, kind of neutered uh in 2014 when I wasn't practicing law when Ferguson happened which as you know would have been the state senate district that I represented so when I was gone and not in the legislature and watched your hometown blow up and you watched from 2,000 miles away that was kind of like I guess when 9-11 happened for you and you went to the service but for me it was kind of like oh shit let me get my law license back what am I doing to be prepared for you know when it happens again which it unfortunately will. Boy, that's really interesting because I I have, I mean, there's a million different ways we could talk about privilege, but I have the privilege of just kind of being like, yeah, I pay my 50 bucks a year to stay, you know, where I could go back, but I, I can't think of any designs, any, any idea where I would. So to, to practicing. Yeah. And, and I think I, I share that privilege because what we're talking about are two lawyers or three lawyers, Robbie included, who don't have to practice law, right? Sure. Right. And, and so Which is the goal of every that. lawyer. Right, right, right. <laughs> and we, so we share that substantial uh, privilege in the game. But, you know, when this stuff started happening, I was like, 
the reason I got this was to serve my community in some capacity. And maybe I haven't been, maybe I haven't been doing that with the law license uh, in the last couple of years, but it's certainly not a weapon one should take off the table when it has such potential to pull the world forward. I thought the best place to start would be just because we're recording this. It's, it's been less than an hour since the verdict was announced, uh, r- roughly an hour since the verdict was announced. I guess let's start with, you know, each of us sort of what is the relative level of surprise? Like for me, I'm pretty surprised. Um, not because I didn't think the facts warranted this. I absolutely did. I just, you know, live on this planet and have observed the news over the last several years. So what about y'all? Yeah, Jason, you know my feelings. I told before the jury went to deliberate, I was worried that not necessarily that it was more likely than not that he would get acquitted or or convicted on a lesser count, but that it was more likely than most people in my life thought it was. Like I thought that based on what I know about police trials uh, and convictions, they're very hard to get, and I was worried that we weren't going to get it. And or at least that there was this mismatch between what the public thought was going to happen and what the probabilities were. But then when the the jury came back so fast and didn't ask for any clarification from the judge, it seemed pretty clear that this was going to be the outcome. For me, just the overwhelming sentiment is just relief. You know, I had kind of been dwelling over the last couple of days, the anxiety built up a way in such that I didn't know that I cared this much about this case. You know, um, obviously everybody saw it and was outraged, but I didn't know how much it would mean to me personally until, you know, it kind of went to the jury. And then I've just been kind of existing at a hundred in terms of anxiety. So it's just a fundamental sense of relief. I, I think I even tweeted like, look, 60% chance that you get a conviction on the most serious charges, 40% chance that some BS happens. And if I told you, when you walk up, wake up and walk into the next room, it's a 40% chance of some bullshit happening. I hope you don't go in that room. Right? <laughs> Boy, great point, man. Like yeah, 40% means one thing until it's you. Until it's you. Yeah, so huge potential for this thing to have been mishandled. And unfortunately, sadly, for me, that goes back to watching the history. We've seen it before, right? And six white folks on a Minnesota jury, I just couldn't put that much faith in six Minnesota white folks, even with Minnesota nice and all of that, right? Um, because these are the same people who let off the guy who killed Philando Castile, and we all saw that on video, right? So, and these are the people who we don't know what they're going to do with Dante Wright. You know, we interrupt the George Floyd murder trial to, to, to bring you Dante Wright slaughtered by police, right? So, the fact that it doesn't stop, the fact that you have a history of Minnesota jurisprudence that's adverse, I just wasn't confident, even in the worst case scenario where we all saw what happened. So I, I think I'm going to just, you know, for the rest of today, and I'm sorry to drone on, for the rest of today, I'm going to allow myself to feel relief and maybe even a little bit of joy. But tomorrow I will, re, you know, perhaps think about you know, this is not an indictment of an entire system that clearly needs reform. This is not a conviction that uh, that means that we will revisit the entire institution of policing, which I think needs to happen. This is a this is a positive development, but this is the idea that in the worst possible circumstance, when we saw it, you know, we got them. We got this one, and that's reason to celebrate. And you know, to your point about it's not really an indictment of of a system of policing. What has struck me throughout this entire thing with, you know, this defendant is 
it seemed to be, maybe it was the nature of the video. I don't know what it was. I guess it was the nature of the video that from the beginning, there seemed to be a bit of a surrender by the usual forces on the right who would defend, you know, the people who, who create a defense fund for Kyle Rittenhouse and the people who like, and I don't, I guess it was the nature of, of the crime and, and the fact that we saw it play out, but we've seen it play out in other places. Maybe it's that in this one, because of the vantage point, you could see the murderer's face throughout. You could register his emotional state. Maybe that's what it was. But what got me is we never saw, even from the people you usually see it from, the free this guy movement. Yeah. So that yeah, so there's a couple of interesting points there. The great Ava DuVernay, you know, amazing filmmaker and storyteller, she said that outside of the, the terror of what happened, one reason that this resonated so starkly with everybody was that cinematically and like artistically, we saw both of their faces in the same frame for such an extended period. And just, you know, as a, that kind of blew my mind, you know, art is never, you know, art, it, art has tremendous power to make us feel certain ways, right? And not that this was art, it was very real, but the way it was framed was like, you know, you couldn't have scripted that any better. Well, to your point, it, it was framed in a way where you didn't have the usual luxury that frankly, a, a white viewer of the video has, which is to come up with a story that you can yeah, tell yourself yeah, yeah. as to what happened before and after this wasn't a shooting right it, it and it was framed in such a way where you are forced to evaluate fault and you're forced to pick a side right but as as the great chris rock says you're right we didn't see the gofundmes we didn't see the guy go to burger king like dylan roof we didn't see you know all the support but that train's never late, as Chris Rock said. <laughs> yeah. What terrified me over the last 48 hours was watching, you know, police uh, brutality experts say, it is my opinion that this was not excessive force. To watch, you know, licensed, board-certified medical doctors say, it is my opinion that he died from heart arrhythmia. And again, six white folks on that jury, you know, good Christian taxpaying folk. You know, these are respectable white men, professionals, leaders in their field, saying something other than what we know happened. And you just never know how that's gonna work out. Uh, and that was one of the things that kind of kept that existential dread rolling as like, you know what, there's a very real possibility that this guy could pull this off. And there was a very real possibility that he'd get away with it in a blue city, in a blue state. Like that's the state of things, which to your point, it's not about liberalism or what, it is about race. Yes, it is purely about white supremacy and, uh, you know, wh- whose word we value, whose opinions we value, whose actions we reward and prosecute, uh, all of that, that. That is so much more the bigger picture here than Democrat-Republican politics. Well, Don, to your point about how this video is obviously critical and cinematic, even, the, you know, one of the problems the defense had was that they had to keep showing this video in order to try to make their points. Uh, and so, you know, one of their arguments, for example, was that he had carbon monoxide poisoning, um, which is unbelievable. You know, I mean, you know, the defense has to mount a defense, you know, but like, well, can we but talk to show that video? What that defense know? is, by the way, the defense is he was killed because they were so neglectful. They they put hit him next to their own exhaust. Like, yeah. 
And oh, you can't punish him for that. <laughs> right. I give him a civil fine, right? <laughs> Cause we we just made him blow in the smoke. That's where we fucked up. But it, it didn't it didn't work. But obviously, like one of the factors could have been that you know in order to make that point, they have to keep showing this video, which just in no way helps their cause. That's uh, right. No, it was yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point. And also, when I think of the procedural elements of the defense, you know, I can't I, that lawyer's face. I hope he shaves his beard because that face is gonna be stuck in my head for the rest of my life. And unfortunately, he stuck with that face forever. And this is who you are now, homeboy. I get it. Everybody has a right to a defense, zealous defense, doing your duty, blah, blah, blah. But in the streets, they say all money ain't good money. So I don't care how much the police association paid you. This is not a case you want to take because you are the guy who tried to tell the world that this was not wrong. And you got to live with that, homeboy, just as a professional. So enjoy that choice. The one silver lining that I saw throughout, even, and I think this even counterbalanced the 60 white, six white folks, which is why I was at 60% likelihood of a conviction. I knew that there was like a 61 year old black woman on the jury. And if you ever been in a room with 61 year old black woman energy, it's a real good chance that like justice is gonna prevail. I'm talking <laughs> about like the woman with like, you know, the, the sequin baseball cap, the super voter. <laughs> The they super tend voter. To, you know, make shit work out. So, you know, once I saw that, my heart was warm just a bit. Well, I think not only they does that woman tend to make shit work out, <laughs> that woman tends to make you want to be better. Yo, and that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, you like stand up straight, you know? Right, like, exactly. Miss Edda is not here for the bullshit. Right. Yeah. You yeah, I not that I knew her name, majority fifty four listeners. Well, I think uh there's not a great transition here, but the <laughs> Big question here is what next? And, you know, the courts have like a spotty history for being the leading edge of social justice movements, meaning like this this verdict in and of itself isn't the solution, obviously. Where do we think this larger movement goes from here? You know, I, I don't know, because since George Floyd has been killed, we've seen such tremendous support for Kyle Rittenhouse. We saw Adam Toledo just last week, and we saw a mayor and corporate institutions in Chicago who tried to cover that up. Uh, we've seen Dante Wright again within the last 10 days, 10 miles down the road from where George Floyd was killed. So if the police in Brooklyn Center weren't on extraordinary caution, 10 miles from where George Floyd was killed and the trial's in progress, who, who is going to be? We've seen uh, Lieutenant Nazario in uh, Virginia a month ago be maced. And by the way, I don't know what he could have done differently in that traffic stop. If I get stopped, that's precisely what I'm doing. I'm just letting the listeners know. And, and you know, we've seen these practices continue uh, in the period since George Floyd became a household name. So I really don't know what this does for the institutional reform that people are seeking. As a matter of fact, I think it could have an adverse effect because the actions here that we all saw unambiguously were so abhorrent that that may be psychologically the new bar that we have to meet in order to get some modicum of accountability. And that is not an optimistic view. That's a great point. Like it could just be like, yeah, this is the bar now. And we were just talking about how this was sort of the perfect scenario to line up to finally have one of these go differently. And that's scary, Don. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> happy Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> well, another uh, not so happy discussion is what are the prospects for appeal here? And this is a Minnesota trial. Uh, it's a state state court trial. 
But, you know, a couple of things that are notable here is that this was not a sequestered jury. And the judge in this case, there was a motion from the defense to say that there was public comments that were tainting the jury. Uh, I think they're referencing Maxine Waters' comment that we need confrontational protests. The judge denied that motion, but said, I think ominously, uh, that this that this could be grounds for appeal. It sounded like he was frustrated. Now, he then denied the motion, and you guys are lawyers, so you you correct me if I'm wrong. My sense is what happens here in these cases is that the judge is given a lot of discretion. So on appeal, unless there's some kind of concrete piece of evidence that the jury was swayed, they leave it up to the judge as a matter of finding a fact as to whether the like larger environment had undue influence on the jury. But you guys tell me. I can only speak from the civil side. And like I've had cases, I had a case where I lost where I actually got statements from two jurors uh, about, you know, the behavior of another juror that I thought, you know, crossed the line and I didn't even come close to successfully uh, appealing it. So I, I don't know on the criminal side. Appeal is an extraordinarily difficult bar to to meet. Um, that said, it was extraordinarily disturbing that the judge would suggest that Maxine Waters, who is one out of thousands of public figures who've commented on this, had done something that could potentially taint the jury pool. Uh, they don't vote for her every two years. They don't know her. She There's no studies that show that she holds extraordinary sway in Hennepin County. Uh, and so you know, why uh, she was singled out as some influencer of uh, exorbitant scale just really seemed weird to me and it seemed improper on, on, on the part of the judge. Uh, that said, we know there will be appeals that object to various things that happen throughout the entirety of the trial. And, and it's unfortunate that that judge gave him that one more morsel to throw into an appeal book uh, when I think it's non-substantive, first of all, second of all, it's unfair. And thirdly, there's a lot to appeal in the course of any trial, even without getting to that. Yeah. And, and to be clear, and you may know more specifically in this, I think what he did was, I think the motion was referencing her. I think he was kind of general in his comments about like public officials generally weighing in on this and making comments. But then he said one member of Congress doesn't hold, like basically agreeing with what you're saying. So it kind of was weird. He kind of said... He kind of admonished her without saying her name, from what I understand, but then said, well, what does one congressman matter? Well, also, you know, I think a lot of people have jumped onto these comments, but it's also important to remember that he didn't say, like, now you're going to win on appeal. He just said, yeah, yeah. he just said, well, okay, maybe now you have your grounds for it. Like, literally, maybe now you have enough reason to be able to file an appeal on this. Yeah, I, I hear that. And, and that's probably what he was saying in a very non-malicious way. But you have a thousand evidentiary decisions that are made over the course of a trial. All of them go one way or the other. Uh, and any one of those that don't go your way, which certainly you have some, could be the grounds for an appeal. And that's why we that's keep records. It's such, a completely so. unnecessary thing for him yeah, to say, is yeah, your point. Yeah. Like he, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's completely unnecessary. You know, one thing we didn't get into, but it just struck me today so much, is that like it's not just that if there hadn't been a video there wouldn't have been a verdict and there wouldn't have been a trial. It's that he'd still be a cop. There's that. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it's someone who now we all acknowledge is a convicted murderer would still be a police officer. Yeah. The thing is that 
in the context of a police interaction, right? There are there is such a broad universe of potential outcomes and a broad universe of negative outcomes from being talked to disrespectfully, from being insulted, intimidated, uh, detained far too long, all the way up through you know physical assault or beating or even you know death. And for someone who has killed somebody on tape in such an uh, aggravating and heinous way, that person there is an infinite amount of microaggressions or even up through macroaggressions. There's an infinite amount of damage that this person has already inflicted upon the world before we saw him execute a guy, right, in broad daylight. And so it's actually uh, incalculable the amount of villainy that a Derek Chauvin or someone of his ilk has inflicted upon people, humanity, but probably for damn sure black people, right? This is a guy who has no criminal history, but has six or maybe seven complaints with the police department for excessive force. So there's no telling how many times he said the N-word or boy or, or, or pulled somebody over black just to run their plates for the hell of it because he was bored. So you have gotten to your point that he's no longer a cop Yes, that's good, but you've actually probably gotten a true villain off the streets, right? Not only is he no longer a cop, but you've actually reduced an evil and a harm that was very present and active throughout the world. Yeah, well said. All right, so while we've been talking, there, I guess, has been some reaction to this uh, by Nancy Pelosi, which seems to be making some headlines. So we have not heard it. Do you want to play that for us? Thank you, George Floyd for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom. How, how heartbreaking was that? Call out for your mom. I can't breathe, but because of you and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice. Uh, Don looks not yeah, dude. thrilled. I would share that emotion. Go ahead. It's just, it's just weird. I'm looking at it for like from the substantive as well as as a politician and corporate guy, like the practicality of that. Like who writes that? Who approves that? Why take a risk by trying to make some weird metaphor? Why take a risk by thanking him as opposed to just saying, hey, today justice was served? It's just, it, it was just, it's just really dangerous territory that shows why you need people of color serving as communications professionals in the ears of the most powerful people. She sounded really stupid. I'm trying to dance around it because we have such great respect for her as liberals who operate in the space, but that was really bad. It was a really bad statement. It didn't sound, I'm going to extend grace because I think I understand that Nancy Pelosi is a decent person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, well, I think we, I'm, like, I'm a big fan of Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. But just, but again, you know, that this is authentic because I just heard it, right, live for the first time. That was really, really bad. That was really bad. <laughs> yeah, that was made you cringe a little. Made, made me cringe. It, it definitely it was an awkward feeling. And it's, it's the substance, too. Uh, so I kind of talked procedural and professional a moment ago. But substantively, I don't think that George Floyd or his family wants anybody's thanks. You know, he would rather not be a legend. He would rather be alive with his daughter, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just... It's weird that you're making George Floyd a hero. He's not a hero. Nobody's making him a hero. 
because this is not something that he would have asked for. You know, it's just, it, this is, this is, uh, you know, all the thanks and recognition, you know, I'm sure he would trade that in a heartbeat uh, uh, to be here with his family. It, it, that, it's just weird. Uh, it's weird from a subject matter content piece, as well as why would you do that procedurally? Yeah. He's a victim, not, not a hero. And yeah, yeah, you don't even need, you don't ever thank me for being victimized. That's just it's weird, right? Well, probably she'd like to have another try at that one. Well, uh, any final thoughts uh, before we head off into the sunset? Yeah, I guess just the there's a lot of work to do, and I think you have to recognize that there's a lot of work to do, and this is not the systemic change. That said, I think it's okay to exhale today and maybe for the rest of this week. And say, man, I'm just glad we got that one. You know, you have to celebrate the victories along the way. And because, uh, you know, there's, there's a real broad struggle when you're out here trying to, uh, as y'all would say, grab an oar. And that work can be exhausting. And so while this is not everything, this is something. And the somethings add up. And it's okay to feel some joy today. Because for once, for once, it turned out the right way. And thinking about how people can grab an oar, you know, I want people to think back to June where so many people in my life were out there protesting and they were throwing up black squares. And I, I mean this sincerely and out of kindness. I, I honestly wonder what a lot of those people have been doing since June. And I want people to ask that. If, and, if, and if you have been engaging with this, you with the same amount of energy and attention since June, that's awesome. But I think so many of us haven't. And what I, what I implore people to do is think about the community that you live in. Like not just the national organizations, but who are the elected officials in your communities? Who are the police officers in your communities? Who are, you know, who are the people who are affected by this and who's pushing for change and engage with groups in your community who are asking the hard questions and actually trying to reform the way that we interact as a society. And there's just so much work to do and, I, and it's not all going to happen on Instagram, you know, and I think what I implore people to do is just get out there and do the work, even when it's not the issue of the day and not the, the issue that's got the big spotlight on it like it has this week. I, I agree. And I mean, I, almost all of it's going to happen not on Instagram, right? The, the technology changes, but the great Gil Scott Heron, the revolution will not be televised, right? So go Google that majority 54s, you know, but that's basically what he's saying. The revolution is real people who care getting out in the streets. And that's the only way it's ever worked. So everybody knows where they can find Ravi and myself on social. Don, tell them where they can find your wisdom. Well, you know, uh, occasionally lucid musings at DCSTL on Twitter, at D Calloway on I to the G, Instagram. Not on that TikTok. No, no, never, never. <laughs> well, remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.